Hello, I'm Nikki Hancocks, editor of Nutri-Ingredients Europe, and it's my pleasure to host this podcast episode on the topic of nutrition for brain health. Joining me for this episode is Patrick Holford, a leading spokesperson on nutrition and mental health. He is the founder of the Institute for Optimum Nutrition and the founder and CEO of the charity Food for the Brain a charity dedicated to generating awareness of the importance of nutrition and lifestyle for mental well-being and cognitive health. He's also authored uh, nearly 50 books on this topic and he's been involved in several groundbreaking studies in this arena too. So thank you so much for joining me, Patrick. My pleasure. So let's dive straight into it. I um, recently became uh, aware of your work as I watched an online webinar hosted by your charity, Food for the Brain. Uh, It was mostly focused on omega-3s. But you and other experts in this space were arguing that our brain health is the aspect of our health that requires urgent attention right now. So can you tell us about why that is and why it is that we're struggling to get the essential brain health nutrition that we need in our modern lifestyles and diets? Well, the first thing, there have actually been three government reports since 2010 that have rated uh, mental health problems as the number one most expensive and urgent health issue and one independent report. And this reflects the fact that rates of depression, ADHD, autism, dementia are all on the increase. Evidence effectively shows that one in six children are neurodivergent or require special educational needs. And these numbers are very much on the increase. Studies on IQ are showing about a 7% decrease in IQ per generation since the 1970s. -hmm. So something's going uh, seriously wrong and it's absolutely imperative because if you plot a straight line as to the increase in mental health problems, we are literally looking by 2080 at one in three children effectively being classified as mentally retarded. That is how serious the problem is and why we have to put mental health and nutrition at the top of the agenda. That seems absolutely extreme is why is this not something I've heard people talking about more before is this just not a topic that people want to admit to being such a big issue well I mean that is the real worry because when you've had three government reports since 2010 each reaching the same conclusion but no action being taken it is extremely concerning one of our advisors professor Michael Crawford who was the man who discovered that all brains of any animal um, are incredibly rich in omega-3 DHA. Any animal, animals who have a a sort of lack of supply have small brains and those who have plenty of supply have have a larger brain. And he's recently written a seminal book called The Shrinking Brain, which shows very clearly that Homo sapiens around 30,000 years ago, had a brain size of 1,600 cc. Now, we split from chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas six and a half million years ago. They kept the same brain size, 350 cc. So we've got this very large brain. It's what makes us human. There are no other species who have that size of brain except for the sea mammals. In other words, the mammals who left the land and went to the sea. We're talking about whales, dolphins, seals, sea lions, and so on. 
And what's happened since the last 30,000 years is our brain size today is 1,330 cc. So not only have we lost 20% of our brain size, which by the way is, to, is measured by you know, skull capacity, uh, we also have decreasing IQ. We also have a massive increase in children's mental health problems. And in some parts of the UK, 50% of women are on antidepressants. So antidepressant prescriptions as an indicator of, of depression uh, have just gone through the roof. So it is a major issue. It is extraordinary that it's not being addressed. And that's one of the reasons why at foodforthebrain.org we're making as much noise as we can and thank you for sharing it you said iq has been reducing since the 1970s yes so what do you think has changed in that time then sugar uh, basically i think that um i mean we do have decreasing intake of omega-3 so anyone i'm 65 uh, anyone uh, of an older age will remember that all children got cod liver oil uh -huh. uh, at school it was a standard thing uh, which was a very, very wise move. Uh, it, it provided vitamin D, which helped with rickets. It provided omega-3 and so on. Uh, today, less than 5% of children achieve even the basic level of, of omega-3, which I would argue is much too low, you know, recommended by, um, you know, by the government. So fish consumption has gone down um, quite remarkably. That's part of the problem. And how did that first occur? Well, in the 1970s, due to the work of a man called Dr. Ansel Hayes. Uh, the notion was developed that fat was causing heart disease and fat was a problem. And we started to eat low fat foods and to a certain extent fatty foods, which of course includes marine foods and oily fish and you know shrimps and other such things, uh, and eggs as well. Uh, you know, the idea was eggs give you cholesterol and that causes heart disease and fat causes heart disease, all of which we know is completely untrue. But if you're not eating fat, what do you eat? And the answer is sugar. So um, the, in the intake of refined ultra-processed foods and sugar really escalated since the 1970s, and it parallels an increase in diabetes, an increase in dementia, an increase in cancer, uh, and many other things. There is no cancer cell. I mean, this is without exception, according to the wonderful professor of biology at uh, uh, Dr. Thomas Seafried. There is no cancer cell that doesn't feed off sugar. So we start to see a whole new pattern of diseases emerging from the 1970s, where we have this decrease in fat intake, decrease in omega-3 intake, and an increase in carbohydrates and sugar. I was about to ask, yeah, when you say sugar, I, I assume you also mean complex carbohydrates, not just sugar as we think of it well yes and also fruit juice we you know we have to understand that nature never gives you sugar fructose without giving you fiber and uh, the effect of eating a whole piece of fruit means that the sugar content is um is slowly released yes and actually while we're on that topic then of slow release of sugar um you've mentioned before of the importance of blood sugar control for brain health and it's an interesting one because there's been a real proliferation of cgms recently and they, these might soon be integrated into wearables too so we're more and more going to be seeing people being able to take control of their blood sugar levels um but i don't think people have really thought about this in terms of brain health they've thought more about uh, keeping their energy levels um, consistent throughout the day and perhaps um, healthy aging benefits. But so do you think there's a big opportunity for people to improve their brain health by using these CGMs? Yes, to some extent. Uh, I actually say there are four 
drivers, if you like, four horses of the mental health apocalypse, at least from a biological point of view. And one is this great increase in sugar intake. And um, the second is a lack of brain fats, which is not just omega-3, but also phospholipids, which are very rich in eggs and fish. We're talking about phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylserine, um, and uh, also omega-3. So vitamin D, omega-3, and phospholipids are the brain fats. Then, terribly important, uh, is our B vitamins, especially B6, folate, and B12. And they are required for a process called methylation, which is reflected in a blood test called homocysteine. And a person's homocysteine level is one of the single best predictors of cognitive decline. If you have a level above 11, which about two in five people do over 60, then you have accelerated brain shrinkage. And the fourth um, driver of the, of the health apocalypse is a lack of antioxidants and an excess of oxidants. And that means smoking, for example, which we know is a big risk with dementia. We know that pollution is as well, so particulate matter, and um, also you know, fried foods and so on. So this is where the polyphenols and the antioxidants, vitamin C we know is extraordinarily protective. So yes, the CGMs may help uh, because they make a person aware of what food does to their blood sugar. But some people call dementia type three diabetes, Sort of, but it's it's not the only thing. And I think that that is really where the science is now moving into a sort of more systems-based approach. You actually have to look at both the structure of the brain and its function and its utilization. So, for example, um, the omega-3 DHA, uh, which is such a big part of our evolution, I have no doubt about that, is how we became Homo sapiens, has to bind to the phospholipids and the binding is done by methylation, which depends on B vitamins. So you need both omega-3 and B vitamins to make the structure of the brain. Now the brain has to have fuel, and the fuel is either glucose or ketones. But the irony is the more glucose, the more sugar that you've consumed, the more resistant you become to insulin. And the effect of insulin is to drive glucose into those brain cells. So when you're insulin resistant, the effect of having had too much sugar is that you're sugar deprived. So the brain cells actually cannot get um, the glucose. So, you know, so you end up in effect with a brain deficit. And there's some very good studies, including by one of our scientific advisors, Professor Stephen Cunane, uh, which have given C8 oil, uh, a medium chain triglyceride, C8 oil, which the liver turns into ketones. And the brain, when it's starved of glucose, which is true for a lot of people with dementia, can use this alternative fuel and it comes back to life. And then we have um, the utilization, and this is also important because, by the way, the antioxidants is all part of circulation. So you've got the structure, omega-3s, phospholipids, but it requires B vitamins. You've got the function, which is the fuel supply, but all metabolism generates oxidants. So antioxidants are, are kind of what protects. So we often hear a lot about people developing Alzheimer's and developing vascular dementia, like a poor supply of nutrients to the brain. They're really synonymous. Yeah. So, for example, if you have a raised homocysteine, it increases your risk of dementia by tenfold, but it increases the risk of cerebrovascular problems by 17fold. And then the last part, structure function and utilization. 
you actually have to use it's just like physical exercise if you don't exercise your muscles aren't strong so you have to use your brain and things like doing physical exercise social interactions intellectual activities i mean for example you know running on a treadmill is far less effective than walking up a hill that's uneven because your brain is having to process so balance dance all those kind of things and this is why in recent years we've learned that if you're if you if you have uh, hearing loss it increases your risk but if you have a hearing aid it reduces your risk if you have cataracts it increases your risk if you have cataract replacement surgery it reduces your risk because without sensory input you don't have utilization so you've got to get the structure right think b vitamins and omegas you've got to have the function right think good blood you know blood sugar supply possibly looking at ketones as well and you've got to have the utilization and when you get all those three right, you do not develop Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is a completely preventable disease for probably 99% of people because less than 1% is actually caused by genes. So that's huge. And it's definitely, we're hearing a lot more about a, a want to put a more preventative healthcare system into place, certainly in the UK and, and, and across Europe as well. Um, are you involved in any conversations with um, bureaucrats um, in, in the UK and perhaps further afield on this topic? Well, less so with the bureaucrats and more so with the, uh, the key scientists working in this field all over the world. So, for example, the, the the one of the top guys in China, Professor Jin Tai Yu from Fudan University, he's part of our group. In America, we have the wonderful assistant professor Tommy Wood. He's a neuroscientist at the University of Washington. He actually helps Formula One racing drivers drive faster uh, through his brain work. We have Professor Robert Lustig. Uh, he's our sugar man. Uh, we have uh, here in the UK, we have Professor Jeremy Spencer. He's he's uh, really an expert in polyphenols. Uh, we have Dr. Simon Dial. He's an expert in omega-3. So so there's a there's a great consistency in the science. And we also have, by the way, Professor David Smith. He used to be the second in charge at Oxford Medical School, an extraordinary pharmacologist by training who has really put the B vitamins and homocysteine on the map. So the scientists and the experts know what needs to happen. My honest belief is it isn't going to happen um, through government. It's not going to happen through the NHS. And the reason I say that is that we already have four government or three government reports. No action has been taken. So if there were a fourth or a fifth or a sixth, how do we know anything's going to happen? So what we've been doing at foodforthebrain.org is going directly to the public. And a few years ago, we uh, we got permission to digitize uh, the proper, full, comprehensive cognitive function test that people do in memory clinics. And uh, we've tested 410,000 people so far. And we hope by the end of 2024, that will be 1 million people. And anyone who does this free online test, which is not a questionnaire, it's an interactive thing, it takes about 10, 15 minutes, then fills in a questionnaire on their diet and lifestyle. From that, we can work out, it's only questions that you can, uh, you know, that you can change, only things that you can change. So if you're doing everything wrong that predicts greater risk, your dementia risk index is 100%, your future risk, and if you do everything right, it's 
So we've now got hundreds of thousands of people actually learning specifically what's driving their risk and changing it, all of which we are capturing and monitoring um, for the purposes of research. And then uh, we have just released a single home test kit, pinprick blood test, it's called dry blood spot analysis. It's a new technology uh, where we measure the homocysteine for the B vitamins, the omega-3 index, the vitamin D level, and also HbA1c, which is for blood sugar. And the point there is these, you know, these um, constant glucose monitors are, are very useful. It's quite expensive. Uh, and they, they tell you in every sort of meal that you have what it's doing. But actually, the single best measure is what doctors use ultimately to diagnose diabetes, uh, which is called HbA1c, but it's really your sugar-coated red blood cells. So what happens is every time your blood sugar spikes, uh, it, it can damage a red blood cell. So it's sugar-damaged or sugar-coated red blood cells. And if 6.5% or more of your blood cells are damaged, basically you've got diabetes. And the point is these red blood cells, they last for three months. So you're, you're, you're not getting the effect that the meal has had, but you're actually seeing over a three-month period how much resilience or money you've got in your blood sugar bank. It's the same with the omega-3 index test, which is absolutely superb. It's in red blood cells. So people say, should I not eat fish on the day that I'm doing this test? I said, it doesn't matter because it's actually um, looking at three-month record of your omega-3 intake. And what was so interesting recently was a study that measured the omega-3 index in, in the plasma, in the blood, um, and uh, looked at brain size and cognitive function. This was in older people. And it found that the omega-3 index predicts both the brain size and the cognitive function. So we start to see in real terms uh, how a lack of omega-3 is impacting uh, on people. And of course, the crazy thing is that, you know, scientists want evidence and the best evidence is said to be a meta-analysis of randomized placebo-controlled trials. Now, we already have that for omega-3 in relation to depression, and it's highly effective. So really, omega-3 should be being prescribed for depression. But no doctor is actually allowed to prescribe omega-3 for depression. So we have in the UK, we're now at, at the point where we have 3 million people who are addicted to antidepressants in the sense that they cannot get off them because the side effects are so severe. And in, in poorer regions of London, 50% of women are on antidepressants. Wow. So we're not addressing, I mean, obviously, uh, there's a lot of psychosocial problems, you know, for depression. Yeah. Very often we become depressed because something depressing happens. But against a backdrop of too much sugar and carbs, lack of omega-3, and of course, if you're eating refined foods, you don't get the B vitamins, mm. um, then you know, your brain really has no chance and you can't recover from the stresses of life. Yes, well, I was going to say, it definitely seems to be that we concentrate more on the many other aspects of our lives that are making us more stressed and depressed these days and not focusing at all on the nutrition aspect. Um, 
so hopefully you're going to have a one million people involved in this study next year which is incredible so other than using this data to help people to take control of their own brain health um will you also be publishing findings from this huge data bank absolutely and yeah. uh, you know we are working on papers as we speak but there's there are two parts to this one is looking at what sets of behaviors what diet what supplements what lifestyle is most protective and also the reverse uh, is associated with cognitive decline and in a sense you know that's the easy part but you need big data which is what we're getting the trickiest bit is then how do you change people's behavior uh, in a positive direction and the what if you like in our research group is being uh, run and explored by Professor Tommy Wood from the University of Washington. The how uh, is going to be investigated by a superb behavior change scientist who ran uh, UCL's Applied Behavior Change Unit. So she, Dr. Christina Curtis, has an applied behavior change team whose speciality is how to change behavior, health behavior across the digital platform. So what happens when someone's done the cognitive function test, completed the questionnaire, found out what's driving their risk, is they can select an area they want to work on. And this is called the cognition program. They select the area they wish to work on. They then receive emails and texts, um, things to watch, things to do, things to monitor and uh, they join a, a community support group as well. There are Zoom groups that they can join. So there's a whole support mechanism. But Dr. Christina Curtis is going to look at what we are doing and how effective it is and what are the barriers that stop people uh, actually engaging and making changes. So our failures are, in a sense, even more important than our successes. Uh, of course, the, the biggest challenge for us, because we are literally funded by individuals who become a friend of the charity for 50 pounds. I mean, this is the extraordinary thing. We have got to this point um, on from individuals and kind companies. I mean, I have to thank Viridian because they I asked them for 500 pounds and they gave me 10,000. And that helped to enable the building of the research database. So Christina Curtis's work is 80,000. So currently we're trying to raise that. So we want, we want to engage with the health food industry because this is a perfect charity for them to support. Mm. And the research that we're going to generate out of it is going to give really concrete information in relation to omega-3s, B vitamins, you know, lower carb products, ketone products, phospholipids, and so on. So the fruit of our research uh, will enable the health food industry to talk in a very positive way about what's needed. So we want those partnerships with companies that are making products that actually support mental health. Excellent. And I'm interested to go back to a point that you just briefly mentioned there, that you're going to be providing recommendations based on the things that the people themselves want to work on. So I guess whether they want to improve their sleep or reduce stress or improve their memory. But how much will that impact the nutrition recommendations that are given to them? Because it sounds like basically it's all the same stuff that people need to increase. 
Well, yes and no. And one of the big problems with the randomized controlled trial way of doing research is you select a very specific group of people, maybe between 60 and 70. Uh, you select out people who have other diseases. Maybe you take people who don't smoke or whatever it happens to be. And then you give them an intervention. And sometimes you give them more than one intervention. And then you run this for a few years. And then if the results are very strong, you, you publish it and you sort of recommend that that be done. Yeah. Uh, but we know all the way back in 2010, when Professor David Smith did his first study on B vitamins versus placebo uh, in people with pre-dementia, got 53% less brain shrinkage, uh, uh, got virtually no further memory loss. And this study, which was impeccable, has never been criticized, resulted in nothing. There was no change. There was no you know, government strategy or anything else. So the problem with randomized controlled trials and this natural route of publication and so on, which of course we will also be doing the publication, um, is that uh, people are different and, you know, they will do different things and some will target, you know, one area and others another area and they start off, you know, different. Some have diabetes, some are overweight, some are underweight and so on. But when we can get data on a million people, uh, we can actually look at the whole pattern that is occurring across those people. And what's so beautiful about the cognition program that we've built is, you know, for one person, it, I mean, there are basically eight domains which are low carbon GL. Uh, the second is brain fats. The third is called antioxidants, but it means antioxidants and polyphenols and the reverse, smoking and pollution, for example. Uh, the fourth is um, healthy gut. The fifth is active mind, uh, active body, and uh, sleep and calm. And the one I didn't mention is also B vitamins. So the point is, some people say dementia is type 3 diabetes. Well, yes, but you can also develop dementia with no diabetes at all because you lack vitamin B12, which is remarkably common in older people because they absorb it less well. So it's less to do with diet, more to do with absorption. And so the point is that different things are driving different people. And what happens in the test is we show a person their two weakest links. So maybe it's low carbon GL, maybe it's active mind, and they pick one. And then they work on that for a month. At the end of the month, we reassess that. So they recomplete the questionnaire in that area and move on to the next. And meanwhile, we're running blood tests and tracking the whole lot, which they see. Mm -hmm. So the, the point is we are doing, I mean, this is people doing research for people, and we share that information back to people. And the point of randomized controlled trials ultimately is that it's put into action. Now we are putting this into action yeah. as the research unfolds. And, you know, that's the important point. I think we're moving into an era where big data is going to be more important than small randomized controlled trials. And by the way, those small randomized controlled trials, the average cost of a, of a randomized controlled trial these days is $7 million. And, you know, the bottom line is the only industry who can really afford that is, is, is the pharmaceutical industry. So in a sense, if you stick to that model of doing research, 
you're going to squeeze out uh, the, the small guys. And that's why we don't really have anything like enough uh, good studies on supplements because they're not patentable and they're not profitable uh, and they're not licensable. Now, this th this is an area that consumers are becoming a lot more interested in just in the last few years. And also the health and nutrition industry is, is getting really excited by this topic of nutrition for brain health. Um, and we're especially seeing a lot of um, adaptogenic um, mushrooms being incorporated into many functional food and drinks. We're also seeing a lot of biotics and interest in the gut-brain axis. Less, I think, less excitement around vitamins and omega-3s. Um, are you hopeful that this greater interest in mind and brain health in the nutrition industry and amongst mass market um, consumers is going to really improve brain health? Or do you think these kind of trendy ingredients and trendy products are a bit of a distraction from the fundamentals of healthy lifestyles? Well, I'm very interested in lion's mane and reishi and uh, also the gut. Uh, however, it is true that the level of evidence for them is a fraction of those of the B vitamins and um, and and the seafood, marine food nutrients, and, and omega three. And to contextualise this, in the U.S. National Institute of Health, looked at what we call population attributable risk. What is driving risk for Alzheimer's? And they attributed twenty two percent of the risk of Alzheimer's to having a raised homocysteine level, in other words, a lack of B6, B12 folate. And of those three, it's the B12 that is the most critical. And they attributed also 22% to a lack of seafood and omega-3. Now, meanwhile, in China, Professor Jin Taiyu led the best meta-analysis um, in this field, 296 um, studies. And they concluded that the single best evidence-based intervention was lowering homocysteine with B vitamins. So if you look at the research, there's no question that the two quickest wins are lowering homocysteine with B vitamins, B6, B12, folate, and also omega-3. And by the way, in the studies on the B vitamins, we are talking about 500 microgram of B12, while the recommended intake is 2.5 microgram. So we're not just talking about eating a bit more meat, fish, eggs, milk, you know, because B12 is only in animal products. So it's a different order. And this is precisely because when your homocysteine is above 11, which two in five people over 60, it will be, what brings it down is those higher levels of, of B vitamins. Now, where it gets really, really fascinating is there have been studies that have been successful with the B vitamins and some that have failed. And there have been studies that have been successful with omega-3 and some that have, have failed. And what happened, the first study on the B vitamins by Professor David Smith gave those three B vitamins, or placebo, to people with pre-dementia, which is called mild cognitive impairment, and showed 53% less brain shrinkage after a year and virtually no further memory loss. So that was amazing, 2010. But then a few years later, they realized that you can't actually build a brain cell membrane um, without methylation, and methylation depends on the B vitamins. But what you're actually building is omega-3 binding to phospholipids. 
So you need the phospholipids, you need the omegas, and you need the Bs. So they went back to their original blood samples, and they split the participants into three groups, those with the lowest omega-3 and those with the highest, and those in the middle. And those with the lowest omega-3 had no benefit at all from the B vitamins. And those with the highest omega-3 had 73% less brain shrinkage. Now, I just want to point out that the latest anti-amyloid drug trial, Denanumab, uh, reported 20% increased rate of brain shrinkage in the group on the drug versus placebo. And we are reporting 73% decreased rate of brain shrinkage with B vitamins, provided you have sufficient omega-3. Now, what happened after that study was a, a study in Sweden, a very good study, Omega Ad, it was called Omega Ad. They had given 2.3 grams of fish oils, which is like two decent capsules, to people with early stage Alzheimer's, and they got no benefit. They went back to their blood samples at the start of the study, looked at the homocysteine, and they found that the third with the highest homocysteine had no benefit at all from omega-3, and the third with the lower homocysteine below 11 had, uh, um, had a massive clinical benefit, more than three times that of any of these anti-amyloid treatments. And then another study which had given B vitamins, a very good Dutch study called B-proof, uh, which had shown a modest effect of the B vitamins, went back to their original baseline blood samples, split them into the third with the highest omega-3 DHA and the third with the lowest. Mm -hmm. And they found that the B vitamins produced a major cognitive benefit, again, leagues ahead of other medication, uh, but only in those with the higher level um, of omega-3. So one thing that we've learned, which I don't think the health food industry have really caught up on, is that there is a codependence and a synergy between omega-3 and B vitamins. So you may be taking omega-3 because you've read it's good for your brain and you want to protect yourself from dementia, but if your homocysteine level is high, they're not going to work. You may be taking B vitamins for the very same reason, but not omega-3. If you don't have sufficient omega-3, it's not going to work. You need both. And you don't just need a B-complex, which may give you 10 microgram of B12. If your homocysteine is raised, you're going to need 500 micrograms. How do you know if it's raised? That's why we've um, now developed a single home test kit, uh, single pinprick of blood, and it will tell you your homocysteine, your omega-3, your vitamin D, and that blood sugar measure HbA1c. And I think that's going to be a game changer because in a sense, people can look inside their body and find out what's actually going on. It indeed does sound like a game changer and such an important message there for the supplements industry to know and to help uh, get the message out there to consumers. There's no point in them taking these supplements if they're not gonna work for them. So well, we, cool. we, we're starting a campaign in the health food industry and Viridian helping us get this together uh, in May to really get every health food shop um, on board. And obviously we'd like you know other companies to help and support and get this on board. And May the 15th is going to be Alzheimer's Prevention Day. We want people to tell people to tell people to do the test. And when we researched uh, the test on a group of 5,000 people, this was uh, back in 2019 with NHS and UCL researchers. We found that the two biggest barriers 
Number one, people said, I don't want to do the test. Why? I don't want to know. Why? Because there's nothing you can do about it. So the first message to get across is that Alzheimer's is a preventable disease. The 1% or less that is caused by genes causes very early onset Alzheimer's in age 50s or 60s. So if you don't have a parent uh, who died from Alzheimer's that occurred in the, their 50s or 60s, the odds are strongly that you do not have any causative gene. So that's the first message to get across. You can do something and the time to act is now, not later. And then the second barrier we found is was trust, uh, that people are reading so many different things about diet and nutrition, that how can we trust the information? But now that we literally have um, a world-class team of absolute top experts, we help hope to build that trust because every single thing that we are recommended is backed up by uh, extraordinarily strong science. And of course, this science is going to turn into action as we start to analyze the results of hundreds of thousands of people across time. Brilliant. And perhaps just to finish off then, what do you think is the biggest brain health myth that could be negatively impacting people's ability to look after this aspect of their health? Or perhaps that's it. Perhaps the myth is that there's nothing they can do about it. Well, I think in a sense, uh, I mean, of course, that definitely is a myth. But in a sense, when we feel depressed or anxious or can't sleep uh, or, you know, can't think straight because we're experiencing something psychological or emotional, our knee-jerk reaction is that it's sort of caused by something, you know, psychological or emotional. We don't think, oh, maybe it's my blood sugar, maybe it's my omega-3 intake, maybe it's my B vitamin status. So we haven't really quite connected that our entire experience, everything we see, hear, think, and feel is occurring through the neural network. And that organ, our brain, is by far the most nutrient-dependent organ of all. That's, I think, in a sense, the biggest myth. We have to start to understand that that space between our ears, um, the brain, is an organ like any other. It's exquisitely dependent on nutrients. And a simple example of this myth is that so many businesses will invest in bright people. They'll invest in tech. Um, they'll invest in attitudinal training. Um, and then they eat garbage. Why would you get a bunch of people together with good brains and not nourish them? And that is why, for example, Professor Tommy Wood helps Formula One drivers to maximize their brain function. You cannot do it without optimum nutrition. It's totally essential for your mind. And just to end, my very first study in this field uh, was with the uh, a schoolmaster of a secondary school, Willem Roberts. And we proposed the increasing vitamins. We didn't really know about omega-3 in those days. This was in the early 80s. Uh, and vitamins and minerals could increase IQ score. And we thought the study would be so controversial. We took 90 children, a third on a high-strength multivitamin and mineral. 
and a third on placebo, a third on nothing. We hired uh, Professor David Benton, who thought we were nuts. There's no way that a multivitamin will increase IQ. And we got Horizon BBC to film the whole experiment. And what happened at the end of seven months and published in The Lancet was we had a 10 point increase in the IQ score on the vitamins, a three point on the placebo, a seven point difference and a five point difference gets half of all children out of special educational need categorization. And it was shown on BBC Horizon. It hit the front page of every um, TV and newspaper. And it was the first study that actually woke people up to the idea that your intelligence is not just something you are born with, like innate or genetic. It's actually a function of your environment, the nutritional environment. And, you know, that in a sense is is where we have to understand that how we feel and how we think and how we perceive and how we function is not just a function of, you know, our natural inborn talent or stress level. It's precisely to do with how we nourish the brain. And if you nourish the brain right, you literally get a brain upgrade. Fantastic. That's so brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Patrick. Um, It's been fantastic to get to hear your insights on this topic and also to hear about the wonderful work that you're doing at Food for the Brain. Uh, I think it's it's sure to have a huge impact on awareness, clearly, but also on, uh, hopefully, on the public's health and also uh, further impact on the health and nutrition industry, I'm sure. So I hope that we can invite you back in the future and perhaps we can delve further into some of the insights that you've managed to gather from this huge bank of data. It'd be great. We'll let you know as soon as we have some good results. Thank you.